When crisis strikes, organisations face a battle of survival under intense scrutiny. How they are judged depends on the performance of individuals and teams huddled in war rooms, working to provide a coherent response under maximum pressure. In Crisis Talks, I aim to capture the insights of people who have responded to a crisis and their stories of leadership, courage and resilience in the face of extreme adversity. Their lessons will help us all be better prepared to preempt and respond proactively and with confidence. My name is Grant Chisnell and this is Crisis Talks. Today I'm interviewing the current CEO of Tower Insurance, Richard Harding, who was in 2010 was the CEO of Territory Insurance Office, who suffered an attack by an individual on one of their offices, which led to a number of serious injuries for both their employees and the members of the Darwin community. Uh, today we're going to be going back over that response, uh, what Richard and his team went through at that particular incident. Some of the lessons that they learnt from from responding to those type of events, and and some of the lessons about the impact of these types of events on the community. Uh, Richard, welcome along to Crisis Talks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, mate. It's great to be here. Now we're going to go back on go back a little while, obviously back nine years to uh, to the third of February, twenty ten. Can, uh, can you remember what was sort of going on before the incident um, and give us a bit of a description of Darwin itself so people can get an understanding of the community and the, and the feeling in that community? Sure. So, you know, Darwin is, is very much a small country town, you know, you know, in a shoes of a big city, if you like. It's a community of about 120, 130,000 people. Uh, the farthest northern outposts of Australia is a very remote. Um, it's a very close-knit um, that morning, actually, you know, the executive team and I were actually at a off-site uh, strategy workshop um, when the incident happened. So we were actually not in the office uh, and were uh, happily involved in you know, facilitated strategy workshop. So it was kind of a bit of a shock when the news came through. Now, for a reminder for everyone on that day, and I'm going to read a, a bit of a snippet from the, from the coronial inquest a few years later, uh, which goes into what exactly happened that day. So for the benefit of everyone here, on the 3rd of February 2010, a person by the name of Paul Wayne Clark, who'd formally changed his name to Bird, committed an offence which shocked the Darwin community. He pushed a shopping trolley containing fireworks and a number of 20-litre jerry cans into the TIO office located at 47 Cavanagh Street before rolling the trolley over and throwing a match onto it, causing it to ignite. Six staff members and three customers were in the vicinity of the trolley at the time and many were seriously injured. Bird left the scene and immediately handed himself in at the police at the Darwin Police Station, uh, where he was arrested and subsequently charged uh, with a number of counts of attempted murder and uh, one count of arson. So on that particular day, you were on that off-site, Richard, you and the executive team. How did you first receive that call of this incident and, and, and where did it come from? So I got, a, I got a phone call from my office and people trying to locate me to tell us what happened. And... Uh, you know, we, had, we stopped the workshop and we didn't really know what had happened at that point. We weren't, I wasn't sure what it was. It was just sort of, uh, you know, an urgent call to come back uh, because there'd been an incident that we needed to, to address. Um, and it was actually, I, I got in my car, I started to ring, uh, 
you know, the guy who was the head of our crisis management team uh, to find out what was going on. And, and it was at that point, the car driving back, which is, I mean, kind of ridiculous because it's about 500 metres, that I found out that it was actually a, a bombing incident that involved uh, injuries to staff and that sort of stuff. So, uh, yeah, there's a fair bit of shock when you first find out. And, but uh, the key thing for me at that point was getting back and getting the team sorted and trying to work out um, what we needed to do and what we're actually trying to get, get assessment of what the actual facts were about uh, where it was, we didn't know that stage, didn't know which branch it was at, where, how big the impact was, what was really actually happening. It was a very vague kind of communication. So those uh, those immediate few minutes when you when you're moving back into the crisis management room, what goes in your mind? What was going on in your mind personally? Oh, personally, it is a fair bit of conflict, right? Because you've got uh, a bit of shock and concern. Oh my God, what's happened? Mm. Uh, but also then trying to think forward to okay, so how do I manage this? What do I need to do? Uh, yeah. Trying to think about what all the different elements of this are from. Um, from getting the team sorted and starting to get the team addressing the issues, but also then thinking about uh, reputation about the people themselves, yeah. about the people. The biggest thing that hits you in the face is there's you know a bunch of customers and staff whose families and everything else. All of that emotion starts to come forward. You've got to work out how do I, I've got to deal with that and then get the team, get a response started, get a, a plan around it. Um, media mm-hmm. starts to start to call and contact stuff. So. Uh, and then obviously they had the police as well. So the police were heavily involved. They started to get involved very quickly. So. Yeah, and, and this was a live incident scene in and around the main streets of Darwin, which is quite a small small uh, CBD area itself. So you had actually people, um, you know, in their offices from memory watching it on TV as well and, and seeing what was going on in TV. And So did you have a lockdown? What was the immediate sort of process that the, the business went through to... to ensure the safety of everyone and account for everyone at that point in time? Yeah, so we, we, we immediately got the crisis management team together and we, it was a pretty quick decision to get the, the business continuity response process going. Yeah. Um, once we knew that, what, what, that it was at the, the CBD branch and the location and stuff, you know, it came reasonably straightforward to account for people. We sort of got the people in the head office branch isolated. We also got security involved to bring because we didn't know whether this was a one-off at that stage. We thought, oh, is this just an yep. individual or is this maybe some unrelated thing for... Darwin also happens to be the largest military uh, establishment in Australia, and we didn't know at that stage, 2010, you know, we didn't know if it was something else. Was it about mm. TIO or some other thing? So we got mm. security in the building and, and asked our people not to leave the building. Um, the branches, the other branches, we also sort of got security out to them uh, pretty quickly and asked them not to, not to. Uh, I don't think we closed the branches at that point in time, but uh, we might have closed them later in the day. Mm. Um, I realised how serious it was. But just straight up, it was just a case of, okay, let's get everything secure, let's get everyone in lockdown, um, mm. start to get a handle on what's actually happened uh, and, and, and a, try and assess what the situation was. Had you done crisis management team training? You, had, you mentioned you had a crisis management team, you had the business continuity program and those sort of things in place or that you enacted pretty quickly there. Had you done a lot of training with the team prior and how did that activation sequence go? Yeah, look, it actually went really well. And, and in, in, in hindsight, when we did a sort of a review at the back end of it, um, the, the crisis management team and the BC team process actually came off pretty well uh, yep. in terms of how it worked. We had a because Darwin is 
it's such a high risk area from a weather event point of view. You know, we spoke about Tracy 1974 yep. its history. Um, as a business, we did a lot of con business continuity planning around that sort of disaster. You know, what happens if we have a cyclone that wipes out the city or that sort of thing. We yep. had done um, we had done some tests before about sort of terrorist or that sort of activity. Um, mm. And so that probably played into it. But, yeah, the, the, the crisis management team formed very quickly yep. and was able to then assume roles very quickly. It actually worked really well. Um, Good. And, and that was a, it's a, it was part of the strength of the response. You, you got that team together quickly. You, you identified that you wanted to get a, you know, uh, accountability for all those staff and get the yep. safety and security as a first sort of objective. Can you remember uh, back into that first briefing, what was the objective or otherwise that you set for the team and, and did it did it did that evolve over time? Yeah, so the, the initial objective is is safety and security uh, around people. Yeah. Um, the, there's two components of the bit that I just talked about about security, but there's other piece about actually the people who've been injured. Um, mm. So there's a work stream that we put on how do we care for the people that have been taken to hospital because there was significant burn victims, um, both our staff and customers. Mm. And how do, we, how do we make sure that, you know, we do everything possible for them and their families to give them enough support um, yep. so to care for people around that perspective. But the overriding opinion of that sort of first few hours was security and safety of anybody else. Yep. Um, and, 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 the, and the secondary objective was establishing the facts because it always, in hindsight, you look back on it, it always is quite... Um, interesting how long it takes to get those facts out. And part of that yep. is police, police themselves put a little security process in place. They don't want the facts to get out too quickly yep. because they yep. want to investigate understand and, and try and find out who knows what, that's what's up. Um, yep. So there is a bit of a evolutionary process about understanding the facts uh, of what had actually happened and, and mm. who, was, who was accountable and stuff. How did you how did you manage that 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 sort of tension between trying to understand what was going on versus you know the the desire of the police to secure that scene, which is part of their response, obviously as well. Yeah, so probably a huge advantage in just being in the role that I was in and the size of, of Darwin, I was able to. In fact, I got a phone call directly from the police commissioner. Um, so actually, and he and I worked together on. Um, on a different task force for, for road safety and stuff, so we knew each other. So he was able to tell me what their process was and what, what was going on, uh, put me in contact with the commander that he allocated to run the investigation and do that, and I went down to the site after that. I went down to the site and actually met with her. And, you know, it was once we'd actually established that primary contact uh, and the information flow, um, you know, we created a protocol where, you know, one of, one of the guys in the crisis team then became the contact into her team, um, and you know that that became that information flow became a lot easier once we'd made that formal connection. Uh, and credit to, to the commissioner at the time, John Roberts. You know, he, John Roberts, he, um, I mean, he reached out to me pretty, pretty quickly on and sort of said, "Okay, mate, you need to understand this is you're not going to get information from us, <laughs> you know, but this is how this is how it's going to work. Uh, go and talk to and." and and we'll start to make it come together. But um, before that, there'd just been, you know, general confusion about what was happening and who was involved and all that sort of stuff. So um, once we established, you know, so if you think about it, 
again, you look at these things in hindsight, it's much clearer. If you think about the crisis management team, establishing those roles is really critical and having someone allocate, okay, you're, you are you are the contact with the police, you, you, you know, at least twice a day, we want you in contact, understanding where they're at, what any new information, any new insights, and we can feed them in touch from what we're doing and so forth, um, and backwards and forwards. So, uh, yeah, that, that just sort of happened at the time as a result of me getting in contact with John and the, and the commander involved. Um, but looking back, that was a really important part of the information flow and the process there. Yeah, they, we often say that the, the relationships that you hold before an incident are money in the bank that you're drawing down on in the event of a major incident, and certainly that's a great anecdote of one of those. What was the, that was the, that helped you with the sort of operational response? What, what did you put in place then to handle the, the family response? Right, so that's, that's one that evolved more over time and actually it, it sort of, as a, in a, in a, at that initial starting point of the event, it really was a, just a part of that security piece because it was kind of like just make sure it was And then as you, as you sort of start to understand and, and, and the hours turn into days and weeks, right, you start to understand that these are life-changing events for people, right, and for people who've been injured in that kind of event, the trauma and the, not just the physical, the physical is actually one one very small element. The trauma and the psychological issues are huge. Um, and and how we supported those people, uh, you know, we, again, so we had a person within our HR team that we ended up allocating as being accountable for um, uh, being their representative. Uh, so it's almost like a representative for, for the injured People in the in the process, um, and they're also their key point of contact, so that the, so that the families um, who needed something could contact us. Uh, you know, because we, we sort of reached out and said, "Anything you need, just let us know." Um, you know, we're, we're here to help. Because uh, we didn't know at that point in time you know, what was what was how severe people were going to be hurt or not. Uh, it was more a case of just let us know. So. Yeah, the families came back with then requests for you know, flying people in who they needed to support people and lots of stuff. So it, that sort of snowballed into a much bigger long-term effort um, than I think we anticipated in the first sort of CNT part of the response. Uh, and, and a really critical part because that didn't just impact the affected people, but how we responded to the affected people had a really big impact on the on the people left behind, like the people not involved in it, the rest of the staff across the organisation um, who needed to see us in that caring and uh, and empathetic light that we actually were doing the right things for those people and, and making that happen. So it was really critical. We always talk about the reputational impacts of any incidents. How critical did you see that response Especially in the in the type of the community that you're living in and operating in in Darwin. Uh, so so I separate the reputational piece. So we just talked about the mm. internal employee related mm. side of things. That was critical. I think yeah, that was vital to ensuring that our employees understood that we cared and we would do everything we could to protect them and look mm. after. Yep. On the external reputation front, we had a very different set of challenges because we had customers who were impacted and then we had a more 
uh, overall thing because as it turned out, uh, the gentleman involved was a, was a customer, a disgruntled claimant. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah, that started to raise the question of, uh, so this is this is a result of, of TIO doing something to this person that's generated mm. this outcome. Mm. Again, in in the long run, uh, it became very clear that the person was disturbed in a bunch of ways mm. that unrelated to his claims treatment by us. Yeah. But the reputation damage at the time was about saying, getting the message to the community about, mm. you know, this is not about, um, this is not, you know, this is not a tip the tap. Yeah, we've been, we've done something to him that's generated this. This is a completely unexpected, yeah. you know, inappropriate response to someone's claim outcome <laughs> and trying yeah. to manage that. That was really, that was, that became my, my actual core role as CEO. Yep. I needed to let the crisis management team get on with doing all of the security safety bits at a step back because the media, and the government uh, mm. and our major stakeholders in yep. communicating what we were doing, why we were doing it, and and trying to make sure that the, the companies got positioned the right way in terms of uh, the impact of the event. How much pressure did that put, not just on you, but on the team in general at that point in time? So that government and other stakeholder, media stakeholders, pressure, how much did that really in part upon each of you in that in that crisis response, oh, huge, huge for me and for the communications and media team. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and again, it, 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 it's sort of self-reinforcing, right? How I responded and how we presented ourselves in the media yep. loops back at the team because they either get confidence from it mm. uh, and like they're doing the right things, and they get they are. Engaged in it and, and, and positive reinforcement, or, or they or they start to get undermined by it. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so yeah. making sure we the right messages out and got the uh, communication clear was really critical. Uh, it was a lot of pressure on me, a lot of pressure on the comms team, trying to help me build the right messages and how to build that communication timing of communication, making sure we were leading. Yeah, uh, which is to do in a police environment, right? So yeah. we wanted yeah. to be out with certain messages and the police didn't want us to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they hadn't concluded their investigation. They needed to do stuff. Um, and that was a challenge. For, I, you know, my, my position was we need to lead the communication and we need to be in front and, and accepting this as an issue and yeah. dealing with it transparently and openly, yeah. not... Uh, hiding behind the, the police or hiding behind something else and saying it's not going to do that. Right? But, um, and I think that approach, that wanting to be transparent, wanting to be out the front was critical to give the team the confidence that, yes, we're doing the right thing. Yes, we're actually we're, we're, you know, we're dealing with this the appropriate way and gave them confidence to get on and do what they needed to do. Yeah, what was one of the examples of where the police were keen to hold back, but you opted to opted to sort of step forward in those? Oh, we didn't ever, we didn't ever go directly against the police, right? Because that's not not good. <laughs> uh, you, you want the one, you want the one on your side. Um, it was more it was more when we wanted to divulge information about the guy uh, near the. Committed the, um, the 
fence, if you like, and they weren't ready to have that information in the public. So we grabbed by pretty quickly. We had telephone threats that he'd made to our staff. That sort of thing that had come through in the background that that they didn't want in the public domain until they actually got their case together. Right. So we say, this is the guy, this is what he's done, he's threatened us a number of times before. We've had to take uh, you know, different action against him before. Mm. This uh, you know, this is disturbed behaviour, this is not normal. Mm. And yeah. And not paint him as the problem, but just balance out the media, which was saying, "Yeah, TIO does does terrible things to people, and mm. this is the result." Kind of thing. So, um, yeah, so that was that was probably the most obvious one. Is you know we just had information about the the person committing the offence that was relevant, but we to the story we wanted to tell about mm. how this had come about, and and you know. Uh, you know, what, what we wanted to do about it, uh, yeah. that the police would get ready to, to release. And and we just balanced that out by telling the story about an unnamed person who has had a history of, of issues with TIO. Yeah. Um, he's not, you know, from our understanding, he's not a stable person, you know, blah, blah. So yeah. we just sort of generalised the information and still trying to get our message out without it being uh, more specific. So you obviously had the people that were directly impacted by that you're supporting them in the hospital and their families, etc. There, what was the other important steps you need to put in place for the rest of the employees or the rest of the workforce? Well, so then, then, then so as you move through from real crisis then into sort of recovery, I mm. suppose is that um, in the recovery side of things, you know, it was really important to have a feedback loop uh, where. Um, the rest of the company got to hear updates about how pro people were progressing in their return to work, yeah. um, which you kind of think is a bit weird, but it really is that community-based uh, caring, small-town environment. So yeah, the person in, in, the, in the HR team that we had accountable for the recovering people also became an uh, advocate that sort of communicated back and we had a sort of a regular update going through the through the organization about recovery where are we at um, yep. we had you know, some some pretty open and transparent conversations about uh, you know the trauma that people were experiencing and lots of stuff so that we could all be sympathetic as an organization um, and and have that openly rather than sort of it not being a thing so we had regular regular comms coming through as updates about you know Frank's gone home from hospital, or uh, you know, yeah. Sally's, Sally's, you know, moved from intensive care into general ward, or whatever. Yeah, you know, just so that people can get a sense of mm. return to normal. Um, mm. uh, and 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 that so that sort of went on for quite some time. Mm. Um, we also gave in that recovery process. We also then put in place. Uh, access to employee assistance or counselling programs. So the day after the bombing, we had a counsellor on site, but we also then continued to have a regular counsellor come in uh, for people, because as we had some of those update conversations, you know, that that reignites trauma for people and makes them reimagine the past lots of stuff. So it was important to continue that support going on. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the key piece was 
just being transparent and regular communication updates to people into the recovery side of things. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the, I don't know uh, how much you want me to talk about that. So the other big piece about recovery was then good. Uh, doing the review, right? So a review of yep. wrong, uh, yep. and that highlighted that some of whilst the TMT and the BCP process had worked well, mm. some of the security and um, access and egress issues in some of the branches was not appropriate, right? So mm. we ended up changing the policy to say that every branch needed to exit. So one of the issues with the branch that caused the most problems was that the gentleman rolled the, the barrels of fuel in through the front door and there was no alternate exit. Right. Everyone had okay. to leave through the front and yeah. uh, that was that was the problem, right? So we changed the policy to say, oh, every branch that we have needs to have a front and rear exit door. There needed to be a fire extinguisher, all that sort of stuff. You know, you think it's all normal, but you suddenly realise that you've built yourself in a mall that only has a front door and, you know, yeah. all that sort of yeah. stuff. And communicating that was as important to the rest of the organisation and saying, mm -hmm. hey, we just, just actually, here's the issue. This is what we're yep. going to do about it. Um, yeah. Now we're refitting all the branches. We're going to move to ones with the doors. Well, yeah, all of that sort of stuff. People seeing the signal that you've taken it seriously, that you're aware of the issues, and you're doing something about it. Mm. Yeah, that transparency piece is, is fundamental. In that so. Yeah, we talk we talk a lot about, and the other interviews I've done have spoken a lot about debriefing, in particular when you talk about air incidents. Um, one of the uh, one of the original. Uh, interviewees was a, a pilot in the in the navy, and um, he talks about the process that they went through, which was a very formal process of debriefing, and immediately post looking at every opportunity that they can identify a lesson that they can take out of it in order to improve or or prevent something like that occurring again. So, simply going through that process yourself showed that that that's a real maturity within the organisation. The other thing I thought that was really interesting at that time, and, and going back to when we went in and um, uh, when we came in for that review post, there's a lot of positive commentary about about you and the other leaders walking the floor, and that was early, early in the piece. What what was why was that was that something that you deliberately thought about there at the time, Richard, or was it just something that just naturally happened? Um, so it probably goes back to a bigger picture on leadership, and we had been trying to make a, a whole bunch of cultural change at TIO at the time anyway. Um, that revolved around the role of, of leaders in the organisation uh, in a whole bunch of aspects, but one of those aspects was visibility and accessibility. Right? Um, and we tried to get our leaders to do a, a walk around the floors pretty much every day. So I said, look, one of the expectations is that each morning you actually say hello to the team. <laughs> you go and, go and walk around the floors and actually treat them like human beings and say hello, how's it going, what happened yesterday, what happened last night? What's happening today? Whatever it was, right? Um, and I think it came from that. And I think it was just one of those things in the CMT where we said, you know, we've got to be visible. We've just got to. I think we eventually came to that that thought that said, actually, we've got to be visible. We've got to go out and talk to people. And 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 again, that transparency thing. Let's not pretend it didn't happen. Let's go out. And say, Are you okay? You know. And, and do you need some help or what's going on with you? What are you thinking? How do you feel? And and tell people it's okay to feel something, whatever it is you feel, 
and then and then make sure that we've got support for people that need it. So it wasn't planned, it wasn't a deliberate, it wasn't part of our BCP or anything like that. It was just, I think, a bit of a spontaneous response that said, our leadership, our leadership expectations are that we're there and visible and accessible. This is a time when that's really important. Let's all go and do it. And I think the team unanimously said that's the right thing to do. That was important, like you said before, internally, um, outward facing as well. That was important for you, obviously, being that front or that spokesperson for the media. How well prepared were you for that for that media interaction or the level of um, the level of scrutiny that, that followed? Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I personally, I generally hate doing media. Um, <laughs> I don't think many do. <laughs> and, Doing it in this situation where uh, actually there's a there's a bit of footage you can go and Google if you like to where I'm standing next to the police commissioner uh, and I look like a stunned man I'm like in shock there it's not yeah. long after the first thing we're standing outside the site and the police mm. commissioner you sort of download about what's happened mm. uh, standing next to him and I uh, I can remember just being in complete shock at that point in time yeah. I, I I think the thing that came to me about the media uh, after that, that initial one, I was just kind of in shock. I said, oh, my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? Um, I think after that one, I kind of, you know, I had a lot of media advisors, really good media advisors locally that worked with me. Um, and, and you know, it just struck me that all I need to do here is just be authentic and care. Um, what, what people needed to see was that I wasn't just some number-crunching robot that I actually, you know, what people think CEOs not here, <laughs> and that I actually care about people and, and, and that sort of stuff. So that authenticity, I think, was really important. That became the major mainstay of it and just expressing our caring. Um, but as I said, the, yeah, the media got quite complicated because TIO at that stage was owned by the Northern Territory government, so the opposition got involved and started to question, you know, as I said before, it became a question about why did this happen at TIO? Was there something wrong with the claims management? Is there something wrong about the way they deal with people, all that sort of stuff? The opposition wanted to make hay out of that and, and stuff, and then the, then the ministers involved in the government wanted to have commentary. So trying to manage through that, the only way to do that was not to play any of the politics and just be authentic and say our priorities, all we care about is the people. We're here to so, do that and just be consistent. Um, Good media advisor is really, really important. Uh, it's really complex really quickly. And there's shit that you don't know about. And stuff that you go, your information that comes out and rumours come out, you know, I can remember journalists coming and ringing up and asking us about about the bomber and, and telling us what they heard the rumour was and us having to say, well, you need to talk to the police because we can't, we can't confirm or deny any of this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, Back to that conversation before about the police not wanting certain information out. Uh, but some of the stories that end up getting printed are just outrageous. And you sort of think, yeah. well, you, you, can't, you just can't get involved in that. You just have to go, that's not our issue right now. Our issue is our people, making sure they're safe and secure. And mm. we're working with the police. The police will have to talk about that, blah, blah, blah. And just try to play as straight about as you can. I remember one of the, um, one of the individuals that was in, impacted by the incident was actually a local homeless fellow. I believe that was outside the branch at the time of the incident. Um, I think a real testament to the responses that they, you didn't seem to treat 
you know, the customers, the local homeless guy or your own employees any differently? Was that a conscious decision from the crisis team? No, it was just a natural decision. Hmm. Um, you know, there's a bit of a side story that I don't know if you want me to go into it, but uh, no, that, guy, that homeless guy, uh, yeah, he, he got patched up by the ambulance at the yeah. scene. He wandered off, and uh, my general counsel at the time um, stumbled across him out at the back of our car park, right, and. With a big bandage on his foot and stuff, and it was all getting infected, right? Because this guy's living in the street. This is a couple of days later. Yeah. And uh, and Will came up to me. He said, oh, "I found. I can't remember the fellow's name now. Yeah, the name. Anyway, I found him. The, yeah, the homeless guy out the back, and he needs to get to hospital." I said, "Well, let's just take him to hospital." And it was about seven o'clock at night, mm. and we were I was only two people in the office, so we put him in my car and we drove him to the hospital and and yeah. offloaded the. Uh, the emergency ward and checked him in to get him to get him helpful. I think it was it's just that's just the practicality of being a human being, right? You, you, you don't. The fact that he's a homeless guy, he's being injured in a bomb. It's no fault of his own. Mm. Like mm. Would anybody else? Right? Um, you can't be differentiating on why uh, or yeah, who you give care to and who you don't. And I think that um, I mean it goes to your point. Yeah, it goes to your point about your objective. Your objective is the the welfare and the well-being and the safety of your, your people. It's not just your people, it's everyone that's involved in these incidents. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes that, that responsibility versus accountability question can come in. And and often you get the... Sometimes, well, not often, sometimes you get the position where there's an unwillingness to, to, to be responsible for fear of being held accountable. So there's there's actually inaction as a result. So I think I think it's a great story. I'm sure my general counsel at the time said to me, you know, we have to be careful. This guy might go after us for some money or something. You know. Yeah. But at, yeah. But at the same time, um, you know, he he would he was the first person who said we should take him to the hospital, and then I said yes, let's just take him to the hospital. You know. Yeah. Uh, and. It's also, you know, it is also very much about Darwin, right? Because Darwin is that small country town. Everyone looks after everybody else. Mm. Uh, you know, that sort of cyclone, cyclone exposure. Mm. Um, yeah. So we, you know, that was just the right thing to do at the time, right? to, to make sure he got looked at. A few days later, you're looking at, you know, the, I think the office reopened again pretty quickly thereafter. It was a good testament, again, to the business continuity processes that you had in place. What was one of the lessons that you learned about the recovery and about the impact on people in general? So probably the biggest lesson learned is how long that recovery cycle actually goes on. You know, the media dies down pretty quickly and... Noise goes away. So once you reopen the branch and things, and the guy's in custody, so that's in a, you know, he's sort of away. There's nothing to talk about anymore. Um, it's easy to think that okay, we're back to normal. Everything's gone on, right? But for the people involved, the recovering people, the customers who were injured, and our staff, it was actually a, a really long process of recovery, and one that you couldn't rush. You know, you, you, you know. So, for example, the, you know, the person we had allocated in the HR team to look after these guys, we kept having conversations about, oh, when should we stop that? You know, when should we stop that? Uh, 
or in terms of the support that we were providing certain families and stuff uh, uh, outside of the, you know, the work health and entitlements and that sort of stuff. You know, that, you know, started to become a business again and everyone says, what about the cost? And the, the thing is that that goes on for quite a long time. I reckon that was at least 12 to 18 months that we kept that going after the event to help people uh, continue trauma uh, kind of counselling access, HR support, communication through the organisation about what was happening to those people, return to work communication about those people. Um, it's actually much longer than you think. Uh, you think you know, and and it's can't, you can't underestimate that trauma. It, it's, it's really big. And it might not seem big to you, but for somebody else, life change, like whether they've been injured or not. And you know, we had people in our call centre that were close to perhaps one of the injured staff members or something. Um, and they, they, they would have been as affected, right? Uh, you know, they're just traumatised by claims officers who might have answered the phone and received the threats uh, that they made originally traumatised, right? Um, they weren't traumatised at the time they got the threat because that they, they said like that was just part of their job, right? But when the threat acted on them, they go, oh, my God, you know, that could be me. It could have... Uh, so, so that need for ongoing support in the recovery process, I think, can't be underestimated. And I think it can't be... You can't... There's no over-investing, right? You can't look at the cost. You've got to go, actually, this is worth doing properly to get people back into normal life. Uh, is there any, is there any, it's always difficult to answer this one or because you're looking at a, a traumatic and a tragic circumstance, but is there any, any real positives that you can take away from or an organisation can take away from, from that response in particular? Uh, so I, I think the, the positives are all around the, the degree to which the organisation rallied together, um, the degree of which care and empathy was shown across the organisation to each other. So there was a whole coming together of the, of the business and the company, um, uh, really unifying and solidifying people into you know, being a bit of a family, helping each other through. Um, I think the leadership team, my team, did a spectacular job in helping their people through that. So I think they all learned a huge amount. I learned a huge amount. Uh, I think the learning is the most positive thing that comes out of these crises, right? Because you go, and I, I yeah, so we do crisis uh, simulations now. Um, and, you know, as Tower Insurance, we have uh, things in the city. We have eight businesses across the city islands, and one of those, for example, is Papua New Guinea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's quite regularly some riots and other political activities in, in Port Moresby. Right? And yeah. how I react to that now, I think, uh, is quite different. People people think I'm overreacting, mm. um, whereas I know it's just actually about that principle of people security first, right? If you can avoid accident, yeah. that's much better. And any, any proactive activity you can take to avoid something mm. Worth it, right? Because when you have your uh, staff injured and you have customers injured, 
for whatever reason, no fault of your own, mm. that is, you know, that's a disaster. So, you know, we have riots in, in the Solomon Islands, for example, in the mm. CBD just recently, mm-hmm. and we closed the branch and our people home because, you know, and everyone was saying, oh, that's an overreaction, it's just going to blow over, it's not a big deal. <laughs> I said, oh, no, no, we're going we're gonna to treat the people as a priority and close that branch and send them home. Yeah. And if we need to, we'll get them evacuated from the country. If things look like they're going to bubble over, let's get mm. them out. Yeah. Let's not I'll pretend that this is okay. Yeah. So be the learning pieces, I think, really, really the best thing that comes out of that awareness and understanding of what a real crisis looks like and, and, and then what you would do differently if you could avoid it. Hmm. Um, with that in mind, I mean, obviously you spoke about being more proactive in an activation of a response, but what what, what was the, you know, looking back, what would you have done differently yourself in that instance? Uh, yeah, back in the bombing instance? Um, well, I, I just wish that I had, uh, you know, I, I think I, I could have been more um, available to some of the injured people. Uh, I was very. I had to do a lot of media, a lot of government work, um, and that kind of meant I had to delegate the opportunity to go and talk to families. And stuff. So I went to the hospital on the day of the bombing, but I didn't really get back to see those injured people and their families as much as I would have benefited them to see to see somebody who's accountable. So one of the roles you play as a CEO or leader in these things is. You are accountable. You're the accountable person. You're the person responsible, and you need to front that and be there. Um, and the trade-off for me was I had to be there for a bunch of other reasons, and that meant that the injured people perhaps didn't get. We certainly supported them and had the right thing, but I personally couldn't think. Um, and that's probably my greatest regret or, or, or thing I did differently. I prioritised them perhaps higher up that list um, and got used as lower down the list. <laughs> As a trade-off, uh, but at uh, the time you've got this, there's a lot of stuff going on that you need to go to work out how do you deal with that stuff. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I, a thousand things. I mean, we, we, you know, we did the review, right? But there's probably a thousand things we done differently. But personally, to me, that's probably the, the biggest one. I look back and go, I should have been more accessible. Mm. Yeah, always a challenge. There's always a time commitment for all of the different stakeholders, and particularly yeah. when it's falling on on one person's cho- shoulders as that accountable person. As you said, it's um, that is a, a real challenge. But equally, I think you and the organisation did a tremendous job in this instance, and and deserve an appropriate credit for it. The last question I've been asking people as I've been interviewing them is: if you had a chance, who who out there, whether it be a business leader or otherwise, you, that's been involved in a crisis, who out there has been involved in a crisis? Would you like to sit down and, and have a have a conversation with? Oh wow, that's a big question. And I usually get the breakdown: is, is it alive or dead? So I, I'm taking both answers to be honest. Wow. Um. Yeah, look, I don't really know the answer to that question. I mean, you, you, you sort of think about, you know, really, really, uh, now disgracing yourself as, oh, I shouldn't say that, 
Uh, <laughs> it's all right, I'll cut that bit out, don't worry. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, in 9-11, Rudy, uh, uh, the mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, what was his name? Uh, yeah, Rudy Giuliani, yep. Um, I mean, that's, that's a complex scenario, right? And you think about the forces at play in that crisis. And, and yeah, what he did was the recovery work, right? Uh, really, really positive. So that's it. I also go back and think about you know, sort of existential crisis, like, you know, you go you think about um, John Kennedy and the, and the sort of Cuban Missile Crisis. That's kind of like global, you know, um, and and he managed to avoid it. And, uh, you know, knowing knowing how he actually went through that process and what happened, um, it's hard to think about that that question. It's a tough question, mate. Uh, it's probably best. I should give you some notice on that one. Sorry. <laughs> but <laughs> you got to go. That's man. That would have been a hugely challenging and complex scenario. Um, yeah. And and he had to get yeah. the community rallied back up and revived and get New York back on its feet. Uh, mm. And for all of the craziness that he sort of does politically at the moment, you, you sort of say, well, mm. Bill has to have credit for the fact that he, he embraced New York and showed that care, right, that care for care piece and yeah. got the city back on its feet. Um, Whilst, whilst the other, you know, the president and other people were going off launching missiles and other things, he had to actually get people back to their day-to-day lives. Trauma. Yeah, I can't imagine what that was like. You know, you spoke about the effect on, on other people and, and what you offered to support others. As a CEO, um, how important is it for you to, to take... Uh, or to use those services and, and, and acknowledge the personal toll that can happen in these circumstances? Yeah, I was very lucky, right? So I had a very supportive board who, you know, so mm. in the of all of this going on, I can remember we had a board meeting on the phone mm. so I could brief the board, like literally on the day of the event, I had the right. board meeting, I had the chairman in the office, and, yep. yeah, he was fantastic, Uh and then he said, mate, you just have to do what's right and, and keep us up to date and, and let us know what you need. So they were incredibly supportive. Yeah. Um, the other thing I think was, is that you've got to take advantage of the advice you're given. It's, it's yeah. you know, um, you know you've, got, you've got all of the advisors are there to your benefit. You, you, if you don't use them, you're, you know, you're not doing your job. Um, mm. I don't know that I then probably used the counselling services as much as I probably should have at that time. I can remember being really stressed and really emotional. Uh, yeah. And I probably didn't use them as much as I should have. They were there. It was probably me just being a dick. You know, I'm thinking I could tough it out. But, uh, mm. yeah, I, I, I think you use advice and use the support if you, if you, if you need it, you know. Uh, Richard Harding, it's been a great insight today into into that particular crisis back in February 3, 2010. We really appreciate you taking us through your experience and sharing your own personal insights into into the impact, not on just not just on the people involved, but everyone else around the organisation. 
So, Richard, thank you very much for joining us on Crisis Talks today. Thanks, Grant. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Grant. That concludes Episode 7 of Crisis Talks. In next week's episode, we go behind the scenes of the Chilean Mines Rescue and the amazing story of Kelvin Brown, the directional drilling expert flown from Perth over to Chile to lead the rescue efforts to find the 33 miners that were trapped underground. We'll hear his amazing story about how he was brought into the event, how he was thrust into the spotlight, and how the lives of the miners depended on his technical expertise and his execution under extreme pressure whilst the eyes of the world were watching. Next week's episode is entitled, Get the Gringo, the story of Kelvin Brown.